two races in two weekends has started MotoGP for 2021 and with it two winners. Vinales on the first weekend and now Fabio Quattararo the second. But it's the Works Yamaha team who've taken both of those two victories. Ducati fought but ultimately it was the wrong Ducatis battling at the sharp end with Pramac Ducati having their best weekend ever in MotoGP. In Qatar 2, Jorge Martin took pole and then led the race until just a couple of laps before the end. And even then, he's now cemented himself into the hearts and minds of many motorsport fans the world over with his down-to-earth attitude and, let's face it, sheer speed. Toby Moody... Val Harunchi and Simon Patterson here. I'm going to go first this week with the first thing that comes into my mind after the Doha Grand Prix weekend. For me, it is just Pramac Ducati. Is it therefore better to be out of the limelight of the works team than in it? And also, if I can squeeze another one, gentlemen, Zarco leads the championship. I'd be a very rich man and be buying you a huge gin and tonic if we could all meet up tonight if I'd put some money on Zarko leading the championship after the second race. Who's going to go next? Uh, MotoGP has never, ever, ever, ever been this close. It is the greatest sport in the world, and I absolutely love my job, because, my word, the time gap covering every finisher in Sunday's race was just insane. Yeah, my, my feeling was you know, pretty similar. The greatest sport in the world, I, I don't know about that, after my football team lost 2-5 I'm to... I'm biased. After my team lost 2-5 to West Brom, that's the greatest sport ever, clearly. But uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a fantastic race, an absolutely fantastic race, a fantastic doubleheader. But from a purely maybe competitive standpoint, my first thought is, this is such a good start. I can't wait to see Marc Marquez come back and win the championship with ease and ruin the intrigue, which I think after Salle seems more likely than it did before for some reason. I know, that's just my feeling. Mm. Mm. Well, as you said, the race was five seconds quicker than last weekend. So the top eight this week would have won last week. But after 42 minutes and 23 seconds, just 8.9 seconds covered the top 15, all points scorers. It's the closest top 15 ever. However, before we get all excited about, oh, it's the closest thing in the world and sliced bread, there's been lots of testing there, three weekends at the same place, and Elio De Angelis was a Formula One driver in the late 70s and early 80s, and he had, a, he had a great saying, we can all go testing. All it means is that the lap times get quicker, but the same guys win the race. <laughs> so maybe there's a bit of that this weekend that we've just seen in Qatar too, but I don't think all of it. So where do we start? Quattararo perfectly analysed Vinales' performance from Qatar 1, and he's turned it around... And he's won earlier than he may be expected to, but he's won as early as he needs to do, Simon, to start to get a championship challenge together because he now knows where he went wrong last year. The interesting thing for me about Quadraro's performance was that he used the strategy that Vinales said he was going to use the week before and then didn't, where uh, he was planning on sort of sitting calm for the first half of the race and then really launching an attack in the second half. Vinales um, didn't do that in the end up. He ended up being forced to have quite an aggressive race where he came through the pack. But uh, obviously when he said it, Quadraro was listening because then five days, six days later, he just did the exact thing that uh, his teammate had said. It was, um, I know we said last week that uh, it had probably been Vinales' finest Grand Prix win to that point. I think the same thing applies this week. It was Quadraro's finest win in MotoGP at least because of of how precise it was and how how kind of locked into the plan he seemed to be. Because uh, you know, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. But this week, his actually did. Yeah, I think it was. A, I think it was pretty pretty surprising to be watching a MotoGP race and seeing the two factory Yamahas running like eighth and ninth at the halfway point and something like that and and thinking 100% oh they're still very much in this there's every chance one of them will win the race and then seeing that come to fruition over the last laps and not being really shocked um it's you know for the factory Yamaha team yeah they could have probably scored a bit more points in this double header but it, it has to feel really good that you've taken a 
a punt on Fabio and he's come up with the goods just after just two races. He's already gotten that race win in factory colors under his belt. Um, I wonder how long it'll continue to be idyllic, between, idyllic between the two because they didn't really have to fight too hard at the top in either races. There seemed to be like sort of a cordial agreement that they don't rough each other up too much. And they spoke of that in the, in the lead up to the race. But I wonder whether that kind of agreement going forward will survive first contact with a race where they're close together going onto the, the penultimate or the final lap, which didn't happen in the Qatar GP, didn't happen in the Doha GP, but the way they're going, it might very well happen sooner rather than later. It certainly will happen in another Grand Prix. Uh, of that, there is no doubt. So what you got to remember is the crew on Quattararo's side haven't won a race for nearly four years. So no wonder they looked happy. Don't forget the Bernie, the Mark Elmers, the, the Suzuki-san, they've all won a while ago with Valentino. So that's a big step for them that they know that they haven't forgotten how to do it after just a couple of races. Funny you say that. I was talking to someone last night um, coming through the airport on the way home um, who's on Quadraro's side of the garage, and he was telling me that they actually felt more love last week. That Obviously, that team are very, you know, they're, they're experienced people managers, and uh, they, they felt like they had got more attention and more love from senior management for finishing fifth and having a bit of a not great result. And that they could then consequently see the same thing happening yesterday where it was kind of Vinales with the arm around him in the garage and his boys getting patted on the back for getting a decent, solid result. Um, it goes to show that there is no number one on that team to me, but it also shows that Lynn Jarvis and Mayo Marigali know exactly what they're doing and keeping trying to keep that happy relationship that Val talked about happy for you know as long as they can. So the... 60 million euro question would be probably even more for their budget. Have they turned it around? Because remember, the works team only won one race last year and the Patronus were doing all the winning on the Yamaha side of things. So is this one swallow that might make a summer or what's your gut? What's your vibe? That, I think it's, oh, it's just genuinely impossible to tell because it's been all Qatar nonstop. It's been the same track and it's been a very similar types of races when it's the Yamaha's got they didn't have to make each of their overtakes stick if that makes any sense because it was you know it was a pack race through and through last weekend and this weekend so um I think in other races where races in, in other weekends where races play out differently and at tracks where the Yamaha is not as historically strong as it is at LaSalle it's obviously really really historically strong here uh I think we'll we'll get a proper answer to that but certainly, you know, there's no reason for, for the Yamahas to be worried about that just yet. They did the job they had to do at, at Lausanne. I don't think you could have really done that much better on, on either side of the garage. Both got their first win out of the way. Got, both showed that they can fight their way through the pack. And they, they don't let their hat drop when they drop down the order at the start. And they'll drop down the order at the start again on a bunch of occasions this year, obviously. But this is at least... This is a good a good showing that it, it won't be lost. It won't be all lost immediately. And when that happens next time, maybe both Maverick and Fabio will keep it in their minds. That like, you know, Qatar, who are like 8th and ninth after the first lap, both of us won a race. I'm, I'm actually a little bit more optimistic than Val because what we've seen in the past, let, let, let's take Ducati for an example. Ducati are really good at Ducati tracks and then really, really poor at non-Ducati tracks and that's eventually what costs them titles. Whereas Vinales in particular has this amazing ability to turn up to a Yamaha track and just completely fall apart. So I think even the fact that he kept his cool yesterday, that he, he you know, that solid performance, that coming through the field, that Quadraro and him seem to be working really well together... It is too early to say that they're going to be championship contenders, but I don't think it's too early to say that Vignales in particular and Quadraro to an extent, based on some of the things we saw last year, has actually fixed the number one problem, which isn't the bike, it's their own heads. Great picture of the pair of them walking through the uh, the Doha airport, the pair of them taking their winning trophies home. Um, and a fantastic result for Yamaha, Maximum points in the Constructors' Championship. They're leading the team's championship. 72 points to Pramax at 57. Um, so a great start. But um, 
at least Quattararo is quicker than his dress sense. Joke, don't write to me. So, uh, so yeah. Well, uh, what a start, what a start. And I, I highlighted the fact that Pramac Ducati had their, their best weekend ever in MotoGP. Perfection for Paolo Campinotti, who's been around the paddock for oh, cracking on nearly 20 years, I'd say now. Two second places for Joan Zarco. On nearly the the, the the two year anniversary of the falling out with KTM, which happened at Hareth a couple of years ago, um, the mess. He was caught on camera swearing, but he learned his lesson and he's been quite humble and kept, kept his mouth shut since. And not everybody is an ogre for life. Uh, I think he was embarrassed by it. I think if I could start with you, Simon, by that mistake, and and now I see that smile is back. I think it's great. I don't so much think the smile is back. I think it's a the, the smile is there for the first time. Um, what I see from from Jan Zarco of late is that since ditching Lauren Fallon, his former manager slash coach slash mentor slash father figure slash controller, really, um, it's almost like the guy has realised that. All the things that were kept from him before are actually quite good fun, like talking to people and having conversations and enjoying life rather than just turning to ride motorbikes and then riding motorbikes. And that that's reflected in his whole personality across the board. He is a friendlier person. He is enjoying life more. He enjoys being in the paddock. He enjoys talking to people in the paddock. And it, it, it's all helping him be faster on the bike. Combine that with the fact that he's in a team where, you know, there isn't really much in the way of pressure in Pramac. There's obviously pressure. It's a race team, but there's not the pressure of a factory team. Um, there's not the you know angry person shouting at him to get results every weekend. There's not the 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 need to be developing a bike every weekend. And he, he's you know he's found the perfect place for where he is mentally, and it it it's ideal. You know, it's paying off. I think there's a there was a surprising amount of Zen emanating from Zarco in one one particular aspect, and that aspect being his his burgeoning relationship with new teammate Jorge Martin. Martin, in theory, should be his absolute first enemy in the paddock right now, not just because he's his teammate, but because Zarco wants the factory Ducati seat. But if Martin starts to perform really well, uh, Ducati might prefer the young guy to, to Zarco if their if their performance levels start to converge. Zarco obviously shouldn't want that, and yet. Zarco was so, like, he seemed really, really jazzed with Jorge's pole. And then he, the way the race played out, he was clearly perfectly content to sit behind his rookie teammate and let him have the, the lead laps, let him have the, the TV coverage, coverage whatsoever, and just sort of support his race a bit. Now, in the end, he obviously overtook him, and Martin didn't, didn't fight too long, but did fight too hard. But the fact that there's already some sort of understanding between these two, it's... Honestly, it is surprising to me, not because either is some sort of complicated, difficult character or whatever. They might be, they might not be. I wouldn't say they're that complicated, either of them. Zarco, not anymore, certainly. Uh, but it's just surprising because it, it seems like it seems like Zarco at least should feel threatened, and it it doesn't look that way. And he he didn't he didn't get threatened by Martin's mind blowing pole, and as a result, he leaves the Qatar doubleheader the points leader, which is pretty incredible. The other person that he should feel absolutely threatened by is the other fast Frenchman. You know, the first person you have to beat is your teammate. The second is the same countryman. And yet here they are together in the podium celebrating France's first ever 1-2 in Grand Prix racing history by uh, Zarco coaching Quadraro through the words of the French national anthem. He was genuinely delighted for him as well. Um, so yeah, Zen is the right word for it, Val. He just seems content with his place in life and and kind of happy to see what the year brings rather than try to force something. I would maybe say that he was helping him through with the Marseillaise because it was one of those, and he's got the wherewithal and the presence of mind to go, do you know what? This might not happen again, but he's wrong because I think it will happen again that we have a French one too between now and the end of the year and next year and hopefully the year For after. Sure. I mean, in what an embarrassment of riches for... There's even a possibility of it happening the other way around. It's only a matter of time until Zarco wins a race. Exactly. Um, but yeah, what a what a great race. Let's go from Pramac Ducati to, to Works Ducati. Um, Jack Miller, pole in Qatar 1. We're talking about Qatar 2. 
But again, Miller came into the <laughs> almost trending, wasn't he? Uh, into the highlight because he put a move, Amir put a move on him. Miller then put a move back before the end of the lap. It was an angry move. It was a get out of my way. It was a nudge out of that last corner. Was Mia's pass a bit too much? But Miller was taking revenge, and I'm surprised he got away with it. Let me say that. Val, what's your take on Miller with that last corner lean, and he put Mia on the white line and nearly on the dirt? I mean, let's let's start with the the inciting incident, I guess, because it's what it's what Jack cited during his explanation of the whole situation. He cited that it was hit three times. We didn't see the three times, but we saw what I presume is the third one, which is when Mir sent it down the inside of turn ten, and they made contact. I've I've tried to rewatch that a bunch today to to understand how I really feel about it because I think sort of there's no real consensus. And the Suzuki can be a bit aggressive and mean and sudden in corners. Even Miller himself previously remarked on that, that you're, you're going into a corner and suddenly out of nowhere there's a Suzuki that can take lines that you cannot take. And yet, you know, watching it from mirrors on board, it, it, it looked fine. I don't, I don't think it was that bad. I mean, yeah, they washed out together. So I guess, you know, Jack clearly didn't, didn't expect him to do what he did. And Jack never, obviously, never looked back. So maybe he heard the sound, but he wouldn't have wouldn't have been aware of the exact positioning of of John Mayer. So maybe there was there was an onus on Mir to to know exactly how they're going through the corner. But I I wouldn't say it was it was like that aggressive or that egregious. But I think what happened is maybe there was a buildup of frustration over the the whole Qatar doubleheader, and that was perhaps if not the final straw, then now let's just call it the final straw. Uh, these two weekends have not worked out for Jack Miller at all they were not, they have not worked out the way they were supposed to work out and so they they come out of the final corner Alex runs ahead washes out wide Mir behind him washes out wide in the exact same way then Mir sticks to that sort of outside line on the main straight and Miller takes his line as if Mir isn't really there and he never I'm not sure how much he made like an active an active move towards Mir to block it like I I can't quite tell looking at it over and over again. But what I can tell is that he certainly made absolutely no effort to accommodate Mir through the exit of that corner, none whatsoever. And, well, let's let's talk about the, the steward's decision now. If, if, it was an, if it was an accident from Miller, he might have raised his hands. But as I think you've just, you've summed it up. There was form between them and it got to boiling point and then it boiled over. Um, he did raise his hand. He raised his hand to tell Mir exactly how pissed off he was with them as they went down the side yeah, finish yeah, yeah, yeah. To yeah. me, it, yeah. I meant I meant to say sorry, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the the fact that he did the opposite of what you would expect shows to me that yeah, I don't think there was, I don't think the intent was to knock anyone off, but the intent was to leave Mir with no choice but to roll out of it, um, and that to me, deserves a penalty because Miller was behind. He knew Mir was there because he looks over at him not once but twice and basically makes eye contact with the guy. So there's no excuse of, I didn't know he was there. And he really, really, really aggressively closed the door. And I'm sorry, the rules say that if you're behind, you're the one that has to accommodate the guy in front. You can't do that. And yet, once again, the, the stewards just, let him away with it which is something that we've seen you know there is zero consistency in the way that the stewards conduct themselves it's the, for for me yeah. if i'm if i'm a MotoGP steward uh, investigating that incident looking at it over and over again the only way jack miller avoids a penalty there is that he doesn't know where mir is is if somehow there's plausible deniability that there is no john mir there that there's nobody he's pushing onto the grass that he's just surprised the fact that we see two head movements from jack towards where Mir is like we can't see his line of sight but logic dictates that he saw him it's it's really and logic dictates that he saw him wash out wide entering the corner and the fact is that the movement continues from right to left that there's no no attempt to give him room whatsoever I think there's I don't see how that's a non-penalty interpretation but the even look I don't have to play armchair steward the one thing I really wanted to see is Okay, you don't feel you know enough from the two riders to make a decision there. Uh, race is over. Summon the two of them. Hear what they have to say. Because Jack's defense wasn't, I haven't seen him. It was, well, that was that kind of race where we barge each other. And if it's that kind of race, then I'm sorry, you get a penalty. That's 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 the way I felt yeah, about it. Yeah, and 
my problem with no penalty is 12, 13-year-olds are in some talent cup run by Dorna and they go, well, he can do it and he got away with it. So I can do it. The excuse that it was a close race, race and there's a bit of argy-bargy doesn't rub with me. Um, you know, I've commentated on people getting killed live on TV. It's not nice. And I don't like that. I, I know it's not flower ranging down the village hall. Get, let's get that clear. I know that they're sat on an engine doing 225 mile an hour at times. Uh, you know, but he, I, I go with Val and I think you do, Simon, which is, okay, let the race lie, but where where are these penalty point things? Where's the race license where they get to three or nine or 12 or whatever? The penalty point system was completely scrapped in 2015 whenever it cost uh, Valentino Rossi the chance to fight for a championship, let's not forget. Spang 15. <laughs> it was done away with after Sepang, after Sepang 15, and we've we've never had an effective system since. That's the problem. That, and, and now we have this weird system where there is no it doesn't it's it almost seems to not matter what you do one week in regards to the penalty of the following week if that makes sense there's there's no progression of penalty there's no consistency in penalty you know we saw a moto 3 rider uh, at the first round, wipe out three other guys and get a double long lap penalty that meant effectively nothing to his race. But then in, Maza in uh, Austria last year, Sam Lowe's wiped out two other riders in a very similar move and got a pit lane start. Where Where's the consistency between those two offences? And, and you know, what, what you said, Toby, about being a, a rider in a Talent Cup series, watching this and thinking, well, if they get away with it, then I can... What must it feel like to be a rider in Moto3 watching it and thinking, you know, the other guy did something like that on me and he got, a, you know, a huge penalty for it. Why are the MotoGP riders being led away with more than the Moto3 riders? And arguably, Sam's accident in Austria was an accident, okay? They're on it, they're yeah. at the brake, they're pulling the lever back to the bar. Stop your bugger. Oh, it's off, Right. Miller mm -hmm. arguably deliberately went, oh, I'll, you know, I'll have it. I know there's a bit of rubbing. I know there's a bit of rubbing his racing, but there just needs to be a keep his result. I haven't got a problem with that. Just a right, you get three points on your card, and when you get to 12, you lose, your, you lose a start, you have a pit lane start, whatever it was in 2014 15. Just to say, oi. But at the moment, he's had nothing, and he won't get anything because it's the day's gone. Uh, my. So my feeling, and this goes beyond, you know, what Miller's intention, what was the, what was the move, what was his intention for me. There's no way that move escapes a penalty if I'm a steward. But that's, you know, that's neither here nor there. The problem is that uh, there's that sort of almost sort of insane feeling of self-policing between riders and MotoGP because it doesn't seem like things are policed, like incidents are policed in any proper way. Like Miller felt aggrieved over the mere nudge. I think the mere nudge, at least maybe, the, the problem with that is that Miller will have known that the mere nudge will never get investigated. Nobody will look at it. Nobody will care. I don't know if he took matters into his own hands as a result, but it's not illogical to assume that at some point, some riders will feel like race control does not have their back in incidents like that, and that they have to be intimidators out on track. And that's you cannot do that in NASCAR in stock cars. That's how it works. But those are stock cars, and still, it's it's really bad and stupid. But at least you know those are much safer things. There, you know, you're surrounded by a bunch of protective metal. Here, if you do stuff like that, people might get really hurt, really, really hurt. You've got you got one point one millimeter millimeter of kangaroo skin yeah. covering your ass. There, there is one thing for me that that just brings that whole what you've just said into stark contrast. Val, we had two high profile incidents at the weekend. One, the one we've discussed at length. The other, the one that ended up with John McPhee and and Jeremy Alcoba trading punches in a gravel trap. That what happened in that in the Moto Three race is very, very, very uncharacteristic of John McPhee. But the reason that that happened, the reason that he lost his temper is because that's the fifth incident between him and Alcoba in the last nine months. And Alcoba hasn't been penalised for any of the previous four. And, and that's why John lost his temper. So it's, it's already happening. 
And there's an element of fight or flight and he was fighting because when you watch the accident, he got hit on the head. That's frightening. You know, that's not just, oh, well, he knocked me off at the hairpin at Hareth when they're doing 33 miles an hour. Yeah, that's a, that, you know, you, you the human nature says, whoa, whoa, you, you're, and just for those 10, 15 seconds, you, your world is a different place and you're revving and you're bending the crankshaft and, oh, you'll do, bash. Uh, of course he regrets it, does John. You know, he's told me as such today, oh, you know, that's so uncharacteristic of me. I'm embarrassed by it. But, yeah, yeah. It, but when it, when it is the fifth, ninth, whatever incident, you just go, oh, I'll biff this bloke. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and obviously the same but different for Miller and me. Or obviously Miller had a very frustrating two weeks coming up to that moment he felt like he'd been aggrieved multiple times by Mir and just the same way the red mist descended and he did something that I think actually based on what he said last night that he was quite embarrassed about because he was very not Jack Miller when explaining it he wasn't very bullish last night and um but but it should wasn't very forthright. No, he wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't discussing it at length. He wasn't discussing the real. He pretty much he did not want to talk through the the specifics of no. the move, which I don't I I don't want to interpret that like as guilt or anything whatever. But he clearly, uh, clearly he knows something there wasn't it, quite right. It, it's easier and to not discuss it. It's easier exactly. from a from a from a management PR point of view. It's easier, and I don't know if he was told or not. None of us do, but it's just easier for not to. Let's just move on quickly to Banyaya. Didn't get the launch system engaged on the grid, so a terrible start. He was twelfth on the first lap. So what a frustrating run for him after his great run in Qatar. One. What was he like in the debriefs? Uh, so I asked him whether he would have taken this pair of results. That's a third and a sixth, I believe, heading into. Uh, heading after the postseason test, whether he would have accepted this result for the first two races, and he said no. And the thing for me that's, that interests me there is that third and sixth, that's still his best sequence of two MotoGP results in a row in his two-and-a-bit-year MotoGP career, which, to me, tells me that uh, Peko's on, on another level now, that he's he's, he's he's found something, he's found the confidence that he, he believes that he can be a MotoGP frontrunner week in, week out. We'll see how that works out on other tracks, but honestly, if I'm if I'm Ducati, I'm not I'm not worried at all at, at what I saw from from Pecco in in Qatar. I think honestly, even the the mistake in the Doha GP at Turn One that cost him like four positions or something, and the fact that he couldn't win the first race, I think that's none of that really matters because the pace was there and the the ultimately the racecraft more or less was there, and he stayed on the bike, which was a problem last two years. I think he's looking great. I, if I'm again, if I'm Ducati. I feel great about the contract I signed with him, even though Zarco is the one leading the, the championship. It's like we said last week um, about, you know, Bagnaia was promoted early into the factory team because of the absence of Andrea Vizioso, and he he was promoted in with a bit of breathing space that, say, Jack Miller didn't have. But what has actually happened is it's him that has stepped up to the mark far quicker than Miller. And, you know, yeah, he is absolutely doing above and beyond what we expected of him to do this year, and they've got to be happy with that. Um, to Just to change the subject slightly, to throw it in there while we mention it, the sooner that... I'm all for tech in MotoGP, but the sooner we ban launch control devices, the better. The whole shot devices. It's just a nightmare at the minute. It goes wrong. It causes problems. They stick open. Um, it, it, it's a bit of a silly topic. Um, but it is coming. There is a ban coming from talking to a few people within teams because the organizers realize that, you know, there is the potential for one of these things to cause a huge accident or to do, you know, to lock a wheel in place or a suspension unit in place going into a turn and cause someone to pile on. But they didn't want to take away the advantage that Ducati got from coming up with the idea. So what they're going to do is they're going to wait until everyone has one. And then they're going to ban them for everybody. Uh, and we're just waiting on Suzuki to play catch-up. As soon as Suzuki get it, the whole thing's over and done with, thankfully. Well, let's see what happens with those launch control things. The other thing that could happen is that if somebody has a terribly slow getaway, then people at the back of the grid, they're coming past him at a difference of speed of 70, 80 miles an hour. And then there's a coming together and... And that's a that's a nasty potential accident. So the worst kind of crash is difference of speed. So let's let's look at the Pramac Ducatis and the work Ducatis. People say, oh, well, you know, Bologna will turn down the Pramac Ducatis. 
because we don't want them winning. We want the red ones winning, not the red and white ones. Barros, Alexander Barros, got a podium at Mugello in 2007 and he beat Casey Stoner that day, who was on course even in early June to win the championship, which he eventually did. I'll never forget, that was actually the best thing that could happen to the works riders because Ducati could turn around and go, why didn't you go quick enough? Look at this lot on the, on the other lot, on the other Pramac Ducatis. They've just beaten you, so you better pull your socks up. So that's the stick that Bologna are going to beat Miller and Bagnaia with in the next 10 days before we get to Portimao. The bikes are the same, aren't they not? Yeah. Yep. So those two are doing better than you two. Over to you. And that's going to be a bit of an Italian mess, but they'll have to work that one out. I don't even know if it's as complicated as that. I genuinely think that if Ducati win the championship this year, they don't give a hoot which one of the four of them does it. <laughs> I I think that there's there's a very vague line there between factory team and, and satellite team at the minute. Uh, they're supporting four riders, and if all four riders are winning, it doesn't really matter which one of them wins the championship. I mean, Yamaha didn't seem to mind last year when Quartararo won the first two races over Vinales, so I, I, I don't see why Degatti would mind that Pramac's doing as well as it did. I also, I don't expect it to, to last much beyond this, this, this weekend, but again, who knows? If it does last, I can't imagine Degatti will be heartbroken. What the, the two Ducati riders, the factory riders, they might be a bit heartbroken because they're both in one-year deals, if I'm not mistaken. And obviously, when you're in Pramac, you're vying for a factory Ducati seat. That's basically, it's it's Alpha Tauri Red Bull in F1. It's kind of the same. So uh, there might be some intra-team tension in there somehow, but oh, Ducati won't mind. Pramac are the new Patronus, as you say. <laughs> you know, it, it it's, it's as simple as that. And and you know what? We said all, all the way through last year, didn't we, Simon? No, oh, this is a great year. It'll never happen again. It's happening already. It's happening already. It's great. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And and all the momentum is with the Pramac guys as well. It, it's There will only be pressure from this on the factory guys because if Zarco goes back to finish in fifth or sixth, that's expected of him and there's no drama. If Jorge Martin has a few crashes now and then, that's fine. He's a rookie. But it's Miller and Bagnaia that have to perform every weekend. It is Miller more than anyone else with a one-year deal and two disappointing results to start the season, who is very much in the firing line right now. Because Claudio Domenicali, Ducati CEO, is completely ruthless. He, In a paddock full of ruthless people, he stands out. And he will not at all be afraid to chop Miller if he thinks that sticking Martin or Zarco on that bike is going to do better for them. I definitely think, I mean, obviously we, we should caveat this by saying it's like a... 30 40 race season or whatever it'll never end but so jack isn't under i don't think he's under like big pressure yet or anything like that or bigger pressure than he would have been but it's it's also it is also worth mentioning that was it just was it two years ago or that there were very strong paddock rumors that ducati was considering giving miller's ride to jorge lorenzo and bringing him back or at least somebody in ducati was considering doing that and Miller basically confirmed that that was the case so there were some residual doubts back then and Jack would do very well not to make those doubts reappear let's just put it that way interesting love the chat love the chat so uh, with Miller and Mia having their set two how do you think Suzuki came out of it as let us not forget the reigning champions what happened in Qatar 2 we were obviously focusing on the front and it just seemed to me they're a little bit invisible. Am I being harsh? So I think Alex Rins had a good race. Um, I think fourth is a strong result for him at a circuit that wasn't and never really has been somewhere you expect Suzuki's to do incredible things. Um, made made even better for me by the fact that he realised early on that he wasn't going to win the thing and that the best thing he could do was pick fourth, settle for it, save his tyres, control that position and then, you know, run that plan to the end. Um, Different race for world champion Juan Mayer. He struggled even before he got nerfed aside by Miller. Um, I've heard some whispered rumours about maybe there's a... 
they weren't very happy with the way the tires worked during the race, which is not a Suzuki regular complaint. Um, but they wouldn't be the first this weekend to have complained about the way the tires weren't working. Um, we asked him about tires last night and he completely changed the subject immediately, just shut down the conversation about how the tire had performed, which is very unlike him. Um, so that kind of reinforces that rumour a little bit. So I think uh, for him, damage control, really. He he got points, not amazing points, but he got enough points and they're one of the teams, one of the many teams who just want to go racing in Europe again. I'm, I'm doing a stupid thing here where I'm pulling up the first two races of last year at, an, at a different track, but still two races at the same track. And I'm looking at how much, how many points Suzuki scored. And what I see is Mir 11, Rins 6. And Rins also got hobbled. So Blimey. compared to that, yeah, so compared to that, this was an amazing doubleheader for Suzuki. And I honestly, I think it was fine. I don't think they're going to be like beating themselves up too badly over there. They, they've both scored pretty pretty good points. Mir maybe will be a bit worried about how the, that second race unfolded because it felt like he should have gotten more out of it. But I, there's some points on the board. I think, yeah, they did just about as well as I expected them to do, which is pretty well. Uh, currently on 11 points in 2021. In 10th position, Paul Espargaro. Don't think he's going to win the world championship. Yeah, can he I does. Put, can I put 50p on that? Uh, yeah, I would. I would. I would. I, I might. Because um, if, and, if I might. And, uh, and Bastianini, also on 11 points at the okay. moment. So, yeah. yeah but good point. Well made. Like it. Like it. I think... But- Fowler's going to fight you in the poll. No, no, I think, it's, uh, I think Bastianini probably won't win the title. Although, who knows? Uh, but, um, Paul, the thing is... The last, the, the person who most thinks that Paul will win the title is seemingly Paul himself because after finishing 13th and labeling the result disgusting, which is just a hilarious word to hear coming out of a MotoGP rider about their results, it's just great. More, more riders should call their races disgusting. I love it. If, but if, if, if Paul Espargaro <laughs> wins this year's world championship, the angriest man on the, in the world is Marquez. Yeah. I don't, like, I, I, don't think he'll win it, but I don't think it's like completely out of the realm of possibility. And certainly Paul doesn't think it's completely out of the realm of possibility because he was, he was really happy with the bike in that Doha GP race. He only said that he basically messed up twice, or was it? Yeah, he messed up twice. I think both times at turn one, ran wide, if I'm not mistaken, cost himself like three seconds combined, which in terms of this race is a lifetime. You cannot lose three seconds during this race because that sends you like five or six positions down. He seemed to be pretty jazzed with how the how the pace at least was, maybe not so much the points results, but because there's the perception that Qatar is a bit not nice to Honda, uh, even even Marquez didn't, doesn't really win there, he only just comes within like a tenth or something, which for Mark Marquez is a bad race, so I think it's, it's not impossible, certainly I, I, it's not impossible to imagine Paul doing some pretty spectacular things with this Honda in the, in the upcoming tracks, World title, I don't know, but he still believes it. So, you know, they all believe it. They all yeah. believe it. That's what they're paid to do, and that's the way they're wired up. Aprilia, uh, he did believe it on uh, in the race on Sunday. Uh, Alicia Spargaro, what a superstar! Yeah, where, where do I go? I mean, I, I I tell you what I was thinking when I was watching the race was, what's that bike there? I know it's early in the championship, Toby, and I know that you always have a mental block on the odd. Oh, it's the it's the Aprilia. Oh, silly me. Not used to seeing it up there. But yeah, that's what they need. And that's what they need for Davizioso to ride it at Hareth on April the 12th. Because it's not that Aprilia want Davizioso. Davizioso will now have an even different frame of mind after Qatar 2 than before Qatar 2, which is, hang on a minute, it's not a bit of a mutt. This is a bit of a greyhound. I feel really, really sorry for Alicia Spigaro because he must be the only rider in history that has recorded his closest ever finish to the leader two weeks in a row and has went further back in the results. But that's just how close it is at the minute. He was ninth first time out and like three seconds off the win. This week he was tenth and two and a half seconds off the win. Like how could you not feel sorry for the guy? But I um I, I had a good interview on Saturday with Massimo Rivola, the Aprilia boss, and he said, look, the job of the minute is convincing Alish to stay calm because if we difficult thing to do. Difficult thing to do. Because if we can be in that ballpark 
every week, eventually something will happen in front of us and we'll get in the podium. We have to just be there now. We have to work in the consistency. We have to constantly be there. And that's exactly what he did at, at Qatar. Um, obviously, the testing thing does close the field a little bit and it gives them a little bit of a an advantage in some regards. But I genuinely think I think they've fixed that bike and it, it's... You know, it's now a good bike. The other thing is that with no ill will in the world to him, because he's a good guy and he is the hardest working person in MotoGP, Alicia Spagaro is not a MotoGP race winner, not a regular race winner. And, and you know, to see him delivering a performance on that machine makes me think that is a very good motorbike now. I cannot wait to hear Andrea Davizioso's first words of feedback on it. And I'm, I, you know, I remain convinced that if Dovi gets on that bike and realizes that everyone in the paddock has completely underestimated Aprilia for the last year, then we're going to see him racing much sooner rather than later. I mean, I'm still a bit, you know, I'm still a bit pessimistic on the on the prospect of Dovi racing just because, uh, just because of Alessia's past record to his teammates. Clearly, this is, this is this bike is his baby, and it's been his baby forever, and it's been it's been a slightly disappointing baby at times and now it no longer is if that makes any sense <laughs> no. it's not that ugly it's not that ugly please uh, I, I, right you're out you're out you're out voted val it's two to one you lose fair enough i, I think <laughs> I, I i think i think that davizioso will ride it and go do you know what there's another three three parts of a second second whatever there is because He's been around, he's more experienced, he knows how to win, he's had more technicality underneath him, he's had more um, experience of managing other people around the, the, the garage than Alicia Spargaro. And I think it will be that kind of Valentino going to Yamaha in 04, that kind of Michael Schumacher going to Ferrari in early 96. You know, Schumacher drove the 95 car and said, I could have won the championship this year in that car. And it was nowhere. It won one race that year. So... I think that could be that possibility of he might just be even further up of what you said, Simon. If he's if he's currently fifth, sixth, or poor sod, tenth, five seconds off the lead, um, then if he's fifth, sixth on a normal race, and as you say, if there's a bowling ball and they all go skittling down the road, then, oh, hello, I'm on the podium. I think that's a great fairy tale. A, a podium finish for for Alicia Spagaro on the Aprilia, and he is instantly an Aprilia employee for the rest of his life. <laughs> like that's they're they're just going to write him a check there. And then how many scooters would you like delivered? Not a problem. <laughs> <coughs> okay, let's move on. A Patronus Yamaha. What the hell is going on at Patronus Yamaha? They were second in the 2020 MotoGP World Championship with uh, with Morbidelli on his own older spec bike. He's still on the older spec Yamaha, so he can't compare it with the other three that are more up to date in 2021. And two of those other three won the two races so far in 2021. Patronus won six Grand Prix last year. Already the works team have won two. Have I hit the nail on the head already? Or does one swallow not make a summer? I know I've used that expression already in this podcast. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's the, the, the best way to look foolish for me now is to say that clearly the the works Yamaha lineup is an upgrade on the Patronus lineup and then watch Franco win like four races in a row. But that all that said, <laughs> uh, when we, I think both of us went to the, to the Saturday Morbidelli debrief, right, Simon? And we were both absolutely bewildered by how confused and lost Franco seemed. Like he didn't really hide the fact that he somehow, after eight, nine days of this Qatar circuit, he was more confused on a bike than I've certainly ever seen him. And the performance that, you know, he did, he went to the first race as the favorite, basically. A lot of people marked him out as a favorite. And the second weekend, there was no pace. There was just nothing. Race was pretty atrocious. Uh yeah, I mean, that just happens to Yamaha riders, I guess. it's not. I don't think it's like Morbidelli's fault in any meaningful way. It's just a Yamaha thing, I guess. But what I do think is, um, I don't see him winning this year's championship. That's, yeah, that's my feeling after. I know after two races, that's a stupid thing to say, but I, I don't see it happening. I think that 19 bike uh, is going to start showing his age sooner rather than later. Maybe already has. 
I, I've, it's very rare that you see a writer with so much relief on his face whenever he asks a journalist a question at a debrief. Um, someone asked him, you know, told him that other writers were confused about things and couldn't find a setup as well. And his response was genuinely like, what, really? Like, the other guys are saying that too? It's not just me? And it was pure relief on Saturday night. He is just, yeah, they're, they're just completely lost. I, I Part of it is that... So we've had really strange weather all week in LaSalle. Uh, temperature's been up and down. The wind's been up and down. The wind blows sand across the track. You go out in one session and it's completely different from the previous session. There's Dunlop rubber going down. There's Michelin rubber going down. So the, this, I've, it's rare to hear riders complaining about conditions changing in the dry between pit exits, never mind between sessions or between days. And that just completely befuddled um, quite a few people, but Morbidelli in particular. Um, I, again, another very stupidly far-reaching conclusion from the two Qatar races, two out of 200 or however many we're going to have. But uh, for me is that the way this these two weekends went for Morbidelli suggests to me strongly he's going to be the next big player in MotoGP's next silly season. Because I think maybe he's reached the end of his natural progression as a Yamaha rider. I don't, I don't see where he goes from here because Yamaha's works lineup is set with the two guys that they have, and they are both younger than him, if I'm not mistaken. Fabio certainly is. I think Maverick is a little bit. Um, and there, the, he tried to, he's, you know, after last, last weekend's race, he made it clear that he felt he wasn't the priority at Yamaha. He walked it back a bit this weekend, but it's not an unreasonable thing to say, but it's, it's the fact that he acknowledges it means that uh, Franco, knowing his value, knowing that he finished uh, runner-up last year, that he's gonna he's gonna want to be a leading man somewhere, and I don't see how that happens here. If that Aprilia is as good as we think it is, and Andrea Dovizioso doesn't go yeah. there next year, if I was in Nawali, I would be doing everything in my power to get Franco Morbidelli on that bike, and there is a chance it might happen. Mm. Yeah. Last year was a long time ago. You know, it might only have been two oh, yeah. races ago, but it was a very, very long time ago. KTM, they couldn't get their tyres to work at Qatar full stop, but they all four of them went for a medium front tyre, not a soft front tyre, medium front tyre in the race for Qatar too. And then Brad Binder towards the end of the race just, I mean, he must, I'll tell you what, I need to go back and look at the onboard of him for the last couple of laps because he came up from... I was obviously concentrating at the front, but I thought he was a lot deeper than the 10th or so. And he finished in eighth position ahead of Miller, ahead of Aleish, ahead of Bastini, Morbidelli, Paul, etc. That, I think, is about as good as it could have got for a KTM in Qatar. That's a, that's a tough one to say because uh, the thing is, is that Miguel was obviously third after the opening lap and then he lost, lost his dash and wasn't able to shift correctly. So at... Miguel at full tilt, we don't know what his longevity in the race would have been. Maybe he could have gotten maybe one or two position more because he started further up. But then again, fighting like that towards the end, fighting through like that, that's mostly a Brad trick. It's hard to say. I don't think he's, I don't think Miguel would be losing too much sleep over it. I don't think Brad will be gaining too much sleep for it because it's been it's been a pretty wretched time for KTM and Qatar. And this is a decent note to end it on, but they're obviously so happy to see the back of this of this circuit, probably happier than almost anybody in the paddock, I'd imagine. I, I think Sunday was a really, really good race for KTM. Um, Oliveira should have been top six um, based on his pace until yeah, until his dash switched off and he lost his shift light and everything and, and uh, sort of fell backwards. Um, Brad would have been able to carve through anyway. Two bikes in the top eight for them. At that circuit, after the how many ever days it feels like forever we've had there, I think would have been like they would have been treating that like a double race win almost at the end, um because it has been just so miserable for them. But it also says a lot about KTM that they were able to make changes, they were able to adapt, they were able to improvise. We think they were able to do that. KTM trick of cutting pieces out of a chassis, welding new pieces in, making it a little bit different and making it work. Um, I I get a, a whisper from a spy in pit lane to say, KTM have a new chassis today on Saturday. I asked Danilo Petrucci about it and he went, how do you know that? So you're right then. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it, it's just, it's proof as we've always known that KTM are really, really adaptable as a manufacturer, they're quick thinking, 
and um, yeah, I think after everything they've went through, they're going to leave. Uh, they're going to leave Lasalle really, really pleased with what they, both what they did achieve and what they could have achieved. What was there for the taking? Don't underestimate the amount of chassis that they can make. Uh, when I was involved there four years ago, we went to a test at Aragon in June, and we had eight bikes. Quite a picture. Quite a picture <laughs> with them all lined up. Eight. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, the rumor has it that Jorge Martin used 21 chassis in his Moto2 season there. Yeah. And that's only Moto2. Yeah. <clears throat> Very good. <laughs> okay, well, as we come towards the top of the hour, we need to talk about Honda. Will Mark Marquez even want to come back after the performance that he's seen from Honda so far this year? The cynics will say that his arm will hurt that little bit more when he goes on April the 12th to see the doctor. It's been nine months now that he hasn't ridden a MotoGP bike full stop. Uh, will Mark Marquez be back in Portugal the next race? Um, I sense that the bravado and the bullish behaviour has faded to not even a glimmer and that common sense has returned after the ridiculousness of him having an operation on a Tuesday and riding a bike on a Saturday last July. Um, no, no, that was all wrong. Rushing back was a huge mistake. He hasn't ridden a MotoGP bike at Portomayo, the next Grand Prix circuit, but they're not stupid. He's learnt the track because he's been there on a track day anyway. He will learn these breaking points in half a dozen laps, if that. They're the best in the world. Um, nobody knows what's going to happen on April the 12th because we'll all be looking at Jerez and seeing how Andrea De Vizioso gets on, I suppose. Is that going to be the news or will Honda trump the news of Nawali? Um, I hope that they don't. Val, what's your take? What's your thoughts? What's your gut on Marquez? My, my gut is that he's... You know he's going to be back on uh, Portimao, but uh, it's not really based on on anything concrete other than the the passage of time. But what you know, if we look at it from a mentality point of view, if we look at Mark, what Mark might be thinking, not that I claim to know what he's thinking, but I bet he was watching those two races and looking at the Honda results and going, I can take that bike into the top five with one of my legs amputated, you guys. I bet he I bet he believes that he's going to he's going to walk the championship when he's back. He's and the thing is he has reason to believe that because what we saw from from a fit mark obviously uh the last couple of years before his 2020 injury disaster is he was on another planet to the other Honda riders. They were not racing in the same series to him. So if if the other Hondas the other Hondas have never gone well in Qatar and Honda doesn't go well in Qatar but Mark goes well enough anywhere to be in victory contention on anything uh my gut is he's back in Portimao my gut is he's top five immediately and my gut is that from there on he everybody goes like oh yeah he's a title contender we're back to the way it was before nothing has changed but that's just my gut I'm not really basing it on I'm not his surgeon you will be surprised to hear so yeah it won't come as no surprise at all that I completely disagree with Val. <laughs> um, I don't know when he's going to come back. Because, uh, again, I, I will agree with you on this, Val. I'm not a surgeon either. Uh, they're very, very obviously not rushing things right now. And he'll come back whenever the doctors tell him he can come back and not a day before. That could be this week. It could be a month later. We, we don't know. But it's just, it's a waiting game. And, and everybody's waiting, not just us. Um but I think he's going to come back to a new world. Um, what we're seeing right now is not something that we saw in 2019 or 2018 behind Mark Marquez. We, we, we have a whole new thing going on right now where the racing for the last, you know, since he wasn't there, the racing has just become insanely close, chaotic, um, different manufacturers every week, different riders every week. Um, and I, I genuinely believe it's the start of something new. I think it's the start of a new era. I think all these kids have learned, because Mark's not a kid anymore, have learned how to be fast without him, have learned what it's like to win races. And don't get me wrong, he's going to come back and win races, but he's not going to come back and win every race or be, you know, have a worst result of second again, because... He, you know, he might find himself sitting second and then suddenly Jorge Martin decides he's going to ride through him to get on the podium. And he will. 
<laughs> if the Hondas were winning and on the podium in Qatar 1 and 2 in 2021, when he goes for his medical appraisal, everybody will know those results. The receptionist, the nurse, the doctor, the patient. Hondas were not on the podium and they were nowhere near the podium. Uh, one of the Hondas is already on its third engine. Um, so you don't need to rush. I think that's going to be some unconscious voice in their minds in in Barcelona when they have the medical appraisal. You know what? Do I need to break my backside for this? Not at the moment. For what it's worth, I really, I really hope that the the guys in charge of looking at Mark's health don't also look at the 2021 MotoGP standings when making their decisions. <laughs> I mean, that seems to me like a no brainer. That that's not something they should do, and I certainly hope they don't. Let's let's really hope they don't take another Marquez in the standings as a reference point. Either. <laughs> <laughs> good one, yeah, good one. Uh, but, but yeah, uh, just, so, just sorry, Simon. Where where is he being seen? He's being seen in Madrid now. He has cut ties completely with Doctor Mir in Barcelona after the debacle of the first surgery, which is quite telling. You do remind me. Yeah. It's convenient that Doctor yes, Mir indeed indeed played his role in the surgery and then went on to win the championship. <laughs> <laughs> Just quickly, we were watching the Grand Prix and uh, the director cut to the backside of a Patronus Yamaha and I thought, oh yeah, well, we need to look at him because the championship and a lot of people hang a lot of promotion on Valentino Rossi and we need to see him. And when we did see him, well, he eventually came over the line out of the points. It was his worst qualifying in MotoGP history, MotoGP that started back in 2002. And Valentino finished outside the points in 16th position. <sighs> yeah, what to say? The Yellow Army will go quiet. Uh, people who watched him, I was at his first Grand Prix in 1996 in, in Malaysia, it's it's sad to see, it's disappointing to see, but we're only two races into a, a, a to a, into a season. But it's a bit difficult when the other Yamahas win the other two Grand Prix, and that's not going to sit well with him. What was the debrief like? Ah, uh, that's hard to say. It wasn't it wasn't as negative as you'd you'd expect it to be, given what Rossi has been used to in his career you know, the seven world titles and countless victories and whatnot. But it's also, maybe there's an acceptance. I don't know. That's It's hard to say. But certainly, for me, the really worrying sign is the fact that he said that the, that the bike felt pretty decent in the Doha GP, which is, it was five seconds out of the points. If the bike felt pretty decent and you're five seconds out of the points, that, that worries me. I don't think that's great. Uh, if, if, if that's... On a, if on a normal day, if that's the baseline, then I don't really see the point here. But I'm not in charge of Petronas Yamaha or Valentino's career. But yeah, uh, problems, rear grip. It's always been real gri rear grip. It's going to be continue to be a rear grip when he has bad weekends. I'm sure he'll have much better weekends than this coming up in the season. But uh, honestly, my opinion heading into the season was that it was going to be unremarkable and probably the end and I definitely saw absolutely nothing these two guitar races to change my mind in any way. I I stand by what I've said all along, um, even if it's a little bit more extreme than I expected it to be. There was always this year is always going to be about the odd good result. Um, the odd race where you can challenge for the podium, the odd race where suddenly it's like, oh crap, that's Valentino. Um and with that comes other races where it's it's the opposite, where he's nowhere. Um, I think it's just a consequence of where he's at in his career. I think it's a consequence of age more than anything else, even though there's a lot of people that don't really want to admit it. But the guy's like over 10 years older than the second oldest rider in the grid. Of course it's a factor. It has to be a factor. And I genuinely, I think, if he's enjoying himself, which he does seem to be doing, he seems to be still having fun being a racer. Um, I, if... You know, if we go back to Europe and there's a couple of good results, it'll be enough, really, for for what his expectations have got to be right now. Lorenzo Salvador is having fun, but he's 38 seconds back of the leader. You know, you know where where does where do you go around? It's it's a balance. You know, I've always said all along. You know, a lot of people get works rides because they're they they are their languages, their PR, their marketable, and their speed. 
Um, but let's just hope that it's not a f- view into 2021 with Valentino Rossi, because I think that would be very, very sad. And I, I, I've got a soft spot for him. I'm not afraid to admit it because I, I, I was there when it all happened. And when it all happened, MotoGP happened with four stroke. It was a massive, massive tidal wave. And we all surfed on top of it. It was it was fantastic. It turned the whole sport around. And I would think it would be a shame if it finished as it is. But that right there is why Valentino Rossi will probably have a MotoGP ride as long as he wants and Lorenzo Salvador he won't. <laughs> okay, well, we've now got one weekend off before we go to Portugal and the circuit of Porto Maia. We went there in the middle of November at the end of the 2020 season. We saw Miguel Oliveira run away with pole position fastest lap and he led every single race. It was light to flag for him. I don't know if the Portuguese will be allowed into the track. If they do, they will be there in their droves. And if they won't be, well, they will surround the surrounding hills and watch from there, I'm sure. But don't let me put any ideas into your head. In the meantime, thank you very much, Val and Simon. It's been one of the most enjoyable podcasts we've done in a long time. This season is full speed ahead. We've got a Frenchman leading the championship. We've got a Frenchman in second place. We've got Johan Zarco leading MotoGP after two Grand Prix so far. Wow. Join us soon. Mm-hmm.